Welcome to Palestine Propaganda and the President with our guest, Ali Abimena. Uh, hello, my name is Walter Hickson. Uh, I'm a professor of history and the author of uh, Israel's Armor, a book on the early history of the Israel lobby and contributing editor of the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. Uh, since 2015, the Washington Report in uh, concert with the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy have held the Israel Lobby Con at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. to critique the powerful pro-Israel lobby. Uh, while we can't presently hold this popular national conference owing to the coronavirus, uh, we can still gather with top experts and you online to focus on how to transcend harmful Israel lobby initiatives and work for better outcomes. Today, we're really excited to host our sixth Israel Lobby Con Extra webinar, Palestine Propaganda and the President with Ali Abunema. Uh, the extra online series does not replace our annual conference, which we'll get going again, but provides ongoing timely analysis until we can uh, convene once again in person. So before we begin, an important reminder, uh, we work to ensure that our speakers, moderators, and attendees do not use this as a platform to perpetuate racist or bigoted behaviors and practices. Our conference stands opposed to anti-Muslim, anti-Jewish, white nationalist, and all other forms of racism and expressions of bigotry directed at any person or group. We also reject the charge of anti-Semitism when it is used spuriously to silence legitimate criticism of Israel's policies and practices. Uh, Ali Abumina is a uh, scarcely needs an introduction. He's a journalist and co-founder and executive director of the widely acclaimed uh, The Electronic Intifada, a nonprofit independent online publication focusing on uh, Palestine. Abu Minai is a frequent speaker on the Middle East, contributing regularly to many publications. He's the author of One Country, a bold proposal to end the Israel-Palestinian impasse, published in 2006 and well before most people were proposing such a thing. And The Battle for Justice in Palestine, uh, an excellent book published by Haymarket Books in 2014. We have a backup moderator today, Grant Smith of IRMEP. Um, Grant will pick up and keep things going in the event of any technical snafus, he'll step in. He's also gonna pop in to relay questions and display some graphics and uh, conduct a poll and film clips and all kinds of good stuff. So um, if you're on a Zoom call, feel free to send in questions. If you're participating via YouTube, you can email questions to israellobbyextra2020 at gmail.com. That's israellobbyextra2020 at gmail.com. You can also ask questions by tweeting to hashtag israellobby.com. Um, we want to do the poll now, Grant. There it is, Walter. Okay, thanks. Um, so there you see it, folks. Uh, please uh, feel free to weigh in here. Um, and I uh, see people are on it already. So that's great. Thank you very much. And uh, you can keep going with that. 
It looks like Electronic Intifada has all the fame and recognition we thought. 58% very familiar with the site. Great. All right. Shall we move on? Please. Okay. So, Ali, just to kick things off, um, for people who don't know, tell us about, you know, your background and how you got involved in the, the long struggle for justice in Palestine. Well, uh, hi, Walter. And uh, it's uh, having previously attended and participated in the conference live, I'm, I'm happy to do it virtually and look forward to when we can meet again in person. And I'm very pleased that our map and the Washington report are continuing this uh, important work. So I just want to say how happy I am to be here. Um, well, now you're asking me to delve back into the uh, far depths of my memory, farther than I usually like to go. Uh, but, um, you know, as, as people know, I am of uh, Palestinian descent. And so the question of Palestine has always been in my uh, life and in my family. Um, and, uh, you know, for that, I, I definitely credit uh, my parents. Um, but really, it was, I think, when I went to, to university, I came to the United States to go to university and began to see just how utterly distorted, uh, depraved, and uh, just having no basis in reality, the discourse was about Palestine. And I would see articles in newspapers, whether it was campus newspapers or the New York Times, that uh, just completely contradicted what I knew to be the reality. And, and so I started to question why that was the case and just felt really an instinctive need to respond to it, first by writing letters um, and eventually by uh, trying to participate in, in the media to the extent that I, that I could. But finding really every door uh, closed or, or uh, virtually closed. And then I think uh, with the advent of the um, internet in the 1990s, when that became much more widespread, uh, we found that we could actually start to communicate with each other. There were listservs. These were basically groups by email where people would share news and views and opinions. Uh, which was just a fantastically powerful tool at the time. And then the World Wide Web, which we all take for granted now. And um, when we started the Electronic Intifada about 20 years ago, unbelievably to me, uh, we must be one of the oldest continuously running uh, news websites in the world at this point. Um, it was initially a response, you know, we were responding to media uh, sort of hitting back at inaccurate co uh, coverage. And then we thought, hang on a minute, we can actually start doing our own coverage and creating our own media. And that's, that's really uh, where it began. And here we are uh, still doing it. And I know we're going to talk about this question, but uh, what worries me very much is that the opportunity the internet provided for us to reach a global audience at, at very low cost uh, that that I'm afraid that that window is closing now as we see more and more online censorship. Yeah, it's certainly a threat, and we're going to come back to that uh, later today. Thank you for that. Um, let's um, we have in the title of the webinar today, uh, you know, the president, and obviously we have a new president uh, elect, uh, whether the current one will ever admit it or not. So, 
Um, want to ask you about about your expectations for Biden. Before we do that, though, Grant's got a nice little film clip to share with us. There's the electronic intifada site. Look Here's the at the Middle East. I think it's about time we stop those of us who support, as most of us do, Israel in this body, for apologizing for our support for Israel. There's no apology to be made, none. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. The United States would have to go out and invent an Israel. So that gives us a sense of, of maybe what we can expect or not expect from the Biden administration. Um, I recently made the conclusion that Trump is the second most enabling president in American history of Israel behind Lyndon Johnson. Um, given all that Trump did, you might expect uh, some change with Biden or do you? Well, just uh, uh, thank you for showing that clip. That is um, from 1986 in the Senate. And, and of course, it's a very frank admission of how Biden saw and sees Israel still uh, as really a tool of US imperialism. He wouldn't use that word, but I think that's, that's what it is. And it's also uh, funny, it just struck me, where he's, he's talking about supporting Israel as if it's this courageous position where you have to fight back all these attacks. Who in 1986 in the United States Senate was making anyone apologize for supporting Israel. I mean, that, the idea that he was taking a courageous position just shows just so much of the fakery around uh, political discussions of Israel then and now uh, in the United States. But Biden uh, has been consistent on this issue. It's perhaps one of the few issues where he's been absolutely rock solid in his support for Israel from the beginning of his career until the present day. And uh, in terms of sort of the immediate uh, contrast or non-contrast with Trump, you know, Trump took some unprecedented steps in terms of moving the US embassy to Jerusalem, uh, formally recognizing uh, Israel's settlements in the West Bank, formally recognizing the annexation of East Jerusalem, the annexation of the Golan Heights, cutting off practically all US aid to the Palestinians, including to hospitals in East Jerusalem and to schools and clinics and refugee camps. So that's what distinguished Trump from his predecessors. But I think that also can be conceals the, the amount of continuity between Trump and the Obama-Biden administration and before that the Bush administration and Clinton and so on in the sense that the so-called peace plan, what's come to be known as the deal of the century that Trump pushed of a truncated Palestinian Bantistan on a fraction of the West Bank with no real sovereignty and no real um, control over its, its fate and destiny uh, really is, uh, I think, much more in tune with, let's say the Clinton parameters these were the parameters that Bill Clinton set out for a, um, 
a, a, a so-called peace deal just before he left office in, in uh, late 1999, or late 2000, sorry. Um, and so Trump was simply saying out loud what uh, people in the Obama and Biden administration thought, but wouldn't say out loud. So Biden has already said he's not moving the embassy back. I would be very surprised if he revokes the recognition of uh, East Jerusalem as the Israeli, as part of Israel and uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. I'll be very surprised if he revokes the uh, recognition of the Golan Heights. So what can we hope for at best? Well, the Biden administration has said that they will restore humanitarian aid to Palestinians. And to the extent that that will get more money to schools and hospitals where it's needed for a very vulnerable population, that's a good thing. But we have to remember that US aid uh, and international aid generally has been used to keep the Palestinians on life support while Israel has, has been allowed to continue aggressively stealing and colonizing Palestinian land, bombing Gaza, killing Palestinians, carrying out massacres. And, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day who pointed out that, well, as awful as Trump has been, we have thankfully, for, for whatever reason, not seen the kind of large-scale massacres of Palestinians uh, that uh, we saw when uh, Israel bombed Gaza in 2014. Of course, that's little consolation because uh, Israel carried out the uh, slow motion massacre during the Great March of Return in 2018 of more than 200 unarmed Palestinian civilians over a period of uh, nine months or, or something. So I'm not trying to claim that there's a big difference there. What I'm saying is that, that from that perspective, Trump hasn't been uh, dramatically worse than Obama and Biden, and I don't expect Biden to be dramatically better than, uh, than Trump. What we may see is a return to the sort of empty peace process language and phraseology of constantly talking about a two-state solution, uh, a bit of hand-wringing about Israeli settlements, but no action. And one final point on this is that, um, you know, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was one of the last uh, sort of high profile world leaders to congratulate President-elect Biden after some delay where I'm sure they were, the Israelis was figuring out, you know, uh, what, what do we do here? And immediately Israeli defense officials were telling media that, oh, we're gonna go to, to the Biden administration within months to start talking about the next US military aid package to Israel. And the context for that is that the Obama-Biden administration gave Israel the biggest military aid package in the history of humanity as one of its final acts. Uh, the Obama administration guaranteed Israel a minimum of $38 billion in US military aid uh, over 10 years. And the Israelis know that if you want to at least match that or increase it, Biden is the guy to go to. 
And <clears throat> you um, make a number of very important points. And one I'd just like to underscore is you, you use the term continuity. And I think it's so important for people to understand that regardless of party and administration, there's been tremendous continuity over generations in uh, pro-Israeli US uh, policy. And yes, to have Biden speaking in the mid 80s about pressure on Israel when settlement building was raging in the Reagan 1980s is quite uh, ironic. So continuing with this theme, um, the do you have um, any, uh, I'm sure you have hope, but any realistic uh, prospect, do you see any realistic prospect for the progressive wing of the Democratic Party to be able to bring any meaningful pressure to bear to counter all the lobby pressure and, and what Israel is going to come back to the table, as you note, uh, asking for uh, no doubt a higher, even higher levels of new military assistance. Yeah, I think if you were just to look at sort of the, the elite echelon of the Democratic Party, uh, you know, the Barack Obamas, the Hillary Clintons, of course, the Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, if you're just to look at them, you would see very little change. You would think actually that US pro-Israel discourse has not changed since the 1980s or the 1990s. Um, but that masks what has been happening within the base of the Democratic Party over a number of years, which is that uh, Israel has lost a great deal of support and Palestinian rights have become central to many left-wing and progressive movements uh, in the Western world, including here in the United States. And we see that reflected in the rhetoric of um, some of these uh, new so-called progressives, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Ilhan Omar, who I think has been one of the, uh, I don't always agree with her, but she's been one of the clearest and most courageous voices on Palestine, as well as a number of other foreign policy issues. Um, and so I think the question of whether we'll see progress on this issue or the progressive wing having an impact on this issue is tied to the bigger, bigger question of whether the progressive wing will have an impact on the party overall, yeah. uh, not just on Palestine, but on issues like you know Medicare for all and on economic issues and so on. And there is clearly a, a civil war maybe that's not the right term, but a, a very fierce conflict within the um, Democratic Party between the corporatist elites and these progressives. And it's unclear to me at this point whether the progressives are actually going to challenge the, uh, the corporate establishment. Uh, I, I think an early test will be, will be to see whether they are willing to put up a challenger uh, to uh, Nancy Pelosi when she seeks re-election as speaker, um, given Pelosi's disastrous performance in the election, having actually lost seats, you know, just barely maintaining the Democratic majority in a year when they were expected to gain seats. Uh, and so that will be a first test, but whether that, um, you know, that's not gonna be resolved now. Th these are long-term, uh, generational, cultural, political changes that are going on within the Democratic Party and more broadly on the left in the United States that are going to continue. And I think the, the trend for people who care about Palestinian rights is, is generally positive and encouraging, but 
the question is, when is that going to translate into policy change at the upper level? Remember, as recently as the 2020 primary campaign, the corporate Democratic Party establishment managed to exclude even the word occupation from its platform when talking about Palestine. So the, the, they're not even willing to mention Israeli occupation. The battle is still to be fought. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be an uphill battle for them. Um, and we'll see if they get any meaningful um, presidential appointments as well as Pelosi's fate. Um, so one thing I think we can count on is that uh, APAC will exert a lot of influence. And one of the interesting things, there was a piece in the uh, Washington Report current uh, edition uh, about APAC will be resurgent after Trump because after all with Trump, they get pretty much everything they want. Um, so I wonder if, if you think that might be the case. And as much as we may doubt whether progressive wing of the Democratic Party will have influence, given the Biden clip that we showed and the long history and the continuity we've discussed, we can be certain APAC is gonna try to exert a lot of uh, influence. So do you think it will be sort of resurgent or can it be any more resurgent? I think APAC will be very comfortable with the Biden administration for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, Trump, um, Trump's um, often openly anti-Semitic rhetoric, uh, where he would attack Amer Jewish Americans for being insufficiently pro-Israel and, and, and even refer to Benjamin Netanyahu as their prime minister, um, his association with white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups, um, which sometimes went uh, far beyond dog whistles to, to more or less open support. Um, you know, hardcore Israel supporters are, are actually fine with that. We saw, for example, um, you know, uh, someone like Sebastian Gorka, a Trump advisor, uh, who is uh, a member of a... Uh, a Nazi group in Hungary being invited to give a, a speech at the, uh, or was invited as a guest of honor at the Zionist Organization of America. So there are groups that are quite comfortable with that. But for some of the more liberal um, pro-Israel groups or the ones who pose as liberal, it was a very uncomfortable situation. They were very happy with Trump's uh, you know, pro-Israel policies, but had a hard time defending his uh, open anti-Semitism and white supremacy. So they will be comfortable with Biden because Biden won't engage in that kind of thing. Uh, perhaps more uh, significant on a policy level is, uh, you know, of course, Trump also as part of his America first populism had this uh, somewhat contrarian uh, streak when it came to US intervention around the world. He often talked about withdrawing US uh, forces from around the world. He never did it, not in any significant numbers. He would talk about it. But um, Biden is, I don't think, going to be like that. We've already seen in terms of the transition team, uh, Biden inviting people like Dana Sproul from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy onto the uh, agency review team for the State Department, basically the team that manages uh, the, the transition into the State Department. And Sproul is somebody who, you know, is a regime change advocate, very pro-Israel, of course, 
the Washington Institute, not to be confused with the Washington Report, of course. We're talking about the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, which is a cutout of APAC. It was actually set up by APAC primarily to promote Israel's interests. So the, the, the neocons and neoliberal warmongers from places like the Washington Institute will find a very welcome, uh, uh, you know, find the Biden administration a very welcoming place to push their policies. And of course, Biden allows them to once again present support for Israel as a, a quote unquote bipartisan issue, whereas under Trump, it, it became an increasingly uh, you know, polarized Republican versus Democrat issue. Yeah, so the, the Iran looms large as always uh, with matters pertaining to Israel and um, the Iran Treaty, obviously Trump torpedoed. Um, do you have a sense at all of, of what Biden's approach to, to that will be? Do you think he will try to um, reassert uh, Obama's, it was a linchpin of Obama's diplomacy. Obama, as we, we were talking earlier, didn't uh, make much of an impact at all or change policy toward Palestine, but he tried with, uh, with Iran. Where do you think that'll go? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I'm a very, very strong critic of Obama, and I always have been, and I've been reading his new book, uh, and, uh, you know, I have some things, maybe we'll have time to get into that, but uh, and he was terrible on Palestine, and, um, but I, I say that as a preface to say, I think that, uh, you know, of all the options, the Iran deal was, um, a net positive because it was about not going to war. It was about, uh, uh, you know, uh, allowing Iran to, to be able to trade and to be able to, to have normal relations with the world. Uh, and the, the Ira Iranians embraced it in, in, in that sense. It was the US that reneged on the deal and pulled out under Trump. Um, the Biden has not said you know, on day one, I'm going to go straight back into the Iran deal. He's not said that. He said that he would rejoin as long as Iran is in compliance. And that language, I think, opens the door for Biden and for Israel and for its lobby to push, to uh, try to, to force changes in the deal, which are to Iran's disadvantage. And you know, what would be the countervailing forces to that? Well, you'd have to look at the other participants in the Iran deal, uh, particularly the European Union. Will they stand up to the United States? Will they say, no, you need to sign up to the deal that the US agreed to, uh, and you need to come, you, the US needs to come back into compliance with the Iran deal. Um, the Europeans are not going to do that. Uh, they've never shown a spine when it comes to the, the United States. And particularly now when they're just so relieved and happy to have another sort of neoliberal transatlanticist back in the White House, they're not going to want a confrontation with the United States. So it's hard to know what will happen. I'll just say I would be very surprised if Biden simply rejoins the deal, no fuss, and says, let's get back to the deal we agreed to after so much difficult negotiation. I think there's going to be all kinds of uh, 
shenanigans going on with Israel trying to put pressure on Biden not to sign up, or at least not to sign up without demanding more concessions. And that's not going to be good news. Yeah, I think that's really good analysis of, of the situation. And that treaty and Iran itself have been so demonized um, during this Republican administration that um, I think it, even if Biden wanted to, I think it'd be hard to walk in and say, I'm just re-upping it. So I think something along what you outline is, is where it's going to go. And it'll be a real struggle if anything happens. Um, we were talking about the lobby and, and you mentioned the discomfort of um, liberal Jewish groups or groups that perceive themselves as, as liberal with uh, Trump's rhetoric, although I'm astonished you would make such a claim about the least racist person in the world, but uh, you, you did. So uh, seriously, the, um, there's APAC, which you know, uh, was comfortable with Netanyahu and, and many of its cohorts are comfortable with Trump, but there is also J Street and there are other groups of, of uh, putatively liberal Zionists. So uh, they seem to be um, you know, more and more active and vocal. And um, unlike APAC, they got Democratic candidates to their virtual conference, to the most recent one, which uh, some of the, uh, the liberal Democratic candidates boycotted the APAC conference. So how do you see the role of, of J Street and other you know, liberal Zionist groups? Do they offer hope at all for justice in Palestine? Well, of course, uh, well, the short answer is no. Uh, liberal Zionist groups, you know, the, the, the Israel lobby has become uh, polarized along party lines. So even though APAC tries to present itself as, um, you know, bipartisan, uh, it's in increasingly associated with the Republican Party or with, with the pro-Israel uh, right and far right and is even seeing competition to its right from groups like the, uh, um, uh, the Israeli-American uh, Council, you know, efforts to outflag them on the, on the right. Um, whereas J Street has become sort of the comfortable home for Democrats who try to appease uh, the base of the party who are uh, increasingly angry about what Israel is doing to Palestinians. So uh, J Street offers sort of a slightly softer face to the Israel lobby. But when it comes to substance, J Street is uh, very anti-Palestinian. They oppose Palestinian refugee rights on the racist grounds that uh, if you're not Jewish, you don't get to come back to your homeland. Uh, they oppose the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, which is uh, of course a nonviolent Palestinian led struggle to put pressure on Israel to respect Palestinian rights. Um, uh, you know, they're a Zionist group. They're about preserving Israel as a state where Jews maintain political, economic, demographic uh, dominance and Palestinians have at best minority rights. And they see a two-state solution as a central way to save Israel in that form. Of course, with the collapse of the two-state solution, liberal Zionism really has nowhere to go. And the key sort of moment, the seminal moment we saw over the last few months, I think, was Peter Beinart basically renouncing the two-state model. Peter Beinart, as many viewers will know, has been one of the most prominent uh, liberal Zionist 
polemicists uh, over the past few years. Uh, and in a piece he wrote in July in Jewish Current, he, he, he basically said uh, that um, the struggle that uh, liberal Zionists like himself have been waging for many decades to separate Jews and Palestinians into two separate states has failed. And it is now uh, time to stop uh, fighting for Jewish and Palestinian separation and to start uh, fighting for Jewish and Palestinian equality. And he also wrote a piece in the New York Times uh, following up on that with the, the rather dramatic title, I no longer believe in a Jewish state. And Beinart's, uh, you know, of course, Beinart wasn't saying anything that Palestinians haven't been saying for many, many years, but it was significant in terms of, uh, I think, where many uh, liberal Zionists are and many Jewish Americans are in terms of their thinking about Israel. And I, I you know, I think it's going to be very hard to uh, put that, you know, to, to put that genie back in the bottle, so to speak. So liberal Zionism is really, has really got nowhere to go. Yeah, I think that was important, what, what Beinert said and did, and, and you know, hopefully we'll hear more of that and um, move it in the only direction, as you say, it has to go. Yeah, and another thing, if I could just mention, yeah, sure. you know, sort of related to this, that I think is a sign of the changing times is, uh, you know, in the last couple of months, peace, Americans for Peace Now, you know, one sort of the main liberal Zionist pro-peace process group um, was holding its, its virtual, its online gala, uh, honoring Yitzhak Rabin. And you might remember that after Palestinians spoke out, uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, pulled out of that uh, because as Palestinians pointed out, Rabin was no hero. He was a war criminal from day one until his dying day. Uh, the peace process he sponsored was fake. And um, to me, that just really showed the way things are changing in terms of the discourse, because a few years ago, Rabin was a saint, you know, and everyone worshipped at the altar of Rabin, the, the martyred peacemaker. And for, Rabin, for us to be able now to actually talk frankly about Rabin as a war criminal, as an apartheid administrator who never wanted to give Palestinians their rights, is a, is a sea change. And I think we have to tie that to what we saw over the summer in the past few years. If we're going to topple statues of, of, of slave-owning founding uh, fathers, if we're going to talk honestly about the history of the United States, well, then we also have to be able to talk honestly about the history and the founding of Israel. So these things, these things are happening at the same time and they are related. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm glad you mentioned that because, um, you know, something that really could be hopeful would be a linkage of the Black Lives Matter movement with, you know, if you're going to crusade as well, people should for racial justice in the United States, you know, the hypocrisy of enabling it in Palestine should be uh, brought home to these. And, and, that, and that is happening, you know, over the past few years, there have been incredible statements from uh, black leaders and black movements in the United States, expressing solidarity with Palestinians, uh, 
there have been delegations to Palestine, there are ongoing uh, exchanges. And um, that continues, I should say, a tradition that goes back to uh, the 1960s when we saw um, uh, you know, black radical thinkers seeing the black struggle in the United States as part of a global anti-imperialist and anti-colonial struggle. And, uh, and therefore seeing solidarity with Palestine as a natural outgrowth of their politics. That I think went into abeyance in the civil rights and post-civil rights period when the, the situation of black people in the United States was presented in isolation uh, or thought about in isolation and not thought about in terms of a, a global uh, struggle against empire and colonialism. So a lot of that thinking is, uh, is, is being highlighted again. And I should say this is one of the reasons because of that courageous leadership from uh, uh, black uh, thinkers and activists in the United States. That's one of the reasons why Israel and its lobby have identified black, the Black Lives Matter movement as an enemy. Yes. And I've written about that. And this is not, you know, it's quite specific uh, that, that they view Black Lives Matter as a risk to the US-Israel relationship precisely because uh, the movement and thinkers within it are making these kinds of connections. Mm -hmm. um, just to follow up on a couple of things you mentioned earlier, um, in uh, contrast to the, the limitations, which you clearly pointed out of the so-called liberal Zionist groups, Jewish Voice for Peace has embraced, uh, endorsed BDS and was very active in uh, giving Ilhan Omar and others, they. Well, I, I wouldn't include them in the category. I, I, no, right. I don't no. think of Jewish Voice for Peace in that category at all. And other, other Jewish groups, because Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, you know, uh, fully supports the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. Uh, they made a statement uh, rejecting uh, Zionism. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, as any organization, they're looking for a uh, you know, a consensus, but among their members, you find many who are, um, you know, very strongly and very staunchly anti-Zionist. But I certainly don't include Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, you know, they're not, they're not the same as J Street. Yeah. Yeah, that's the point I think worth making. Um, you also, you know, just quickly um, mentioned Rabin, and I'll just say that, you know, I worked through in depth the material after the uh, June 1967 war, and Rabin was an absolute architect of the occupation and repression. And for, you know, uh, I don't, I wouldn't argue with your depiction of him as a war criminal at all. He, he was a, an architect of the repression. So um, it's very simplistic just to celebrate him as a, you know, as, as a courageous advocate of, of peace. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, let's move on to um, another facet of the Trump policy um, was, you know, that um, his son-in-law orchestrated was, was bringing in these Arab regimes, um, three of them, to recognize Israel as, as part of this quote-unquote deal of the century. Uh, how do you see all that? Is it, is it important in terms of should we expect more of it? Did, what did Israel and the lobby gain out of that that they can build on? or do you think it's ephemeral? 
I don't think it's ephemeral because what they were doing was bringing out into the open um, deep and long-standing relationships between uh, these Gulf regimes and Israel. Uh, these relationships go back at least to the 1990s in the case of the United Arab Emirates. And in recent years, we've seen them cozying up to, um, to Israel more or less openly. So it was a formalization of those ties. And I think to understand what's going on, you have to look at the bigger context. These are all client regimes and protectorates of the United States. And these regimes cannot exist without the imperial sponsorship and support of the United States. And that is true uh, with Israel as well. As much as Israel uh, likes to present itself or, or, or market itself as you know, this little um, Sparta that can look after itself, of course it can't. And as much as Israel makes of its own um, you know, weapons technology and, and arms industry, the weapons that really allow Israel to project power and to, to project terror across the region are all American weapons. You'll remember that uh, when, the, when Israel tried to make its own fighter jet in the 1980s, the Lavi, it was an absolute disaster. The thing was you know, a lemon, so to speak. So Israel is totally dependent on the United States. And um, so these uh, client regimes of the United States, whether it's in the UAE or Bahrain or uh, Saudi Arabia or Israel, uh, have a common interest in, in getting together. For one thing, they can be a collective lobby. You know, they, they're sort of strength in numbers. They can help each other lobby the uh, government and what the imperial master in Washington for the things they want or need. And of course, the umbrella for this was is the U.S. bringing them together in uh, in the framework of its uh, of its desire for confrontation with Iran, and that desire comes from uh, the fear that Iran, with you know a population of eighty or ninety people, uh, a lot of natural resources, a lot of ingenuity, uh, has the potential to be. Uh, you know, a regional power and a regional rival. And so it comes from a U.S. imperial determination to keep Iran down at any price, including the price of imposing horrific sanctions, which stop Iranians from getting medicine and getting spare parts for airliners so that they can travel safely uh, and so on. That's the framework for these agreements. So you know, there's a symbolic loss for Palestinians in that, uh, you know, there's the, the, the shattering of, of uh, a united front in terms of Palestinian rights. But in reality, that was so threadbare. And these regimes have not been an asset to the Palestinian cause for many years, if ever. Okay, um, that's a really fascinating assessment. Um, it's, it's more complex, I think, than, than a lot of people realize. Let's shift a little bit to, um, you know, one of the most pernicious things about the injustice in Palestine is, I mean, it's kind of two fronts. Um, and, and the most horrific, of course, is in Palestine, where it destroys people's lives and literally kills people. But um, it's in the process of trying to kill civil liberties in this country. That's an, another front. And free speech. And... Um, 
as we talked at the outset, you started the electronic intifada, um, you and, and other, other uh, media, internet um, and uh, online sources to, to battle this. And now there's, you know, the lobby and others recognize that and they begin to act on that front as well. So can you talk about some of the threats of censorship and intrusions? Certainly I'm very well aware of it from an academic setting and, and the climate on campuses and the attacks against student for justice in Palestine and uh, the repression that goes on against speakers, but um, you can lump that in if you'd like, but, but definitely talk about in, in terms of your platform and other similar platforms, how do you see this um, effort by Zoom, uh, Google, Facebook, and others to, and where, where do we stand with all that? Yeah, well, you know, it's very disturbing because uh, I, I think it was two years ago at the Israel Lobby Conference, I spoke about the dangers of uh, Russiagate, the narrative that the Democrats put out in the wake of their defeat in 2016, that uh, Trump's victory had all been orchestrated by Russia. And, you know, this is something that was that that a lot of people bought into. And you ask them, well, where's the evidence? Oh, but, you know, I, I read it in the New York Times or I saw it on CNN. But, you know, there was never any evidence. And then they put all this um, all this uh, faith in the Mueller report, which, again, turned out to nothing. And then Ukraine gate and the impeachment, again, nothing. I mean, it was a gift to Trump in the sense that uh, when he said there's no collusion, he turned out to be right. They could never really pin anything on him. Uh, unfortunately, there's been no reckoning with that uh, reality. However, one of the, the major outgrowths of that uh, was uh, the demands, you know, because the fake narrative uh, was that, you know, Russia had, had used Facebook to spread disinformation that had somehow, you know, influenced American voters. Nobody ever found, to my knowledge, no one has lo located a single voter who was impacted by any of this and changed their vote or, or decided not to vote because of some Russian meme they saw on Facebook. It, it never happened. But what did happen was a lot of demands from Democrats, from liberals, even from people on the left for, oh, Facebook has to crack down on disinformation. And as we warned, uh, you know, a, a few years ago, the first victims of this will be people on the left and people who dissent against US foreign policy. And that is precisely what happened. And Palestinians have, as usual, been the canary in the coal mine who have suffered the brunt of the censorship first and foremost. And the recent examples we've seen is Zoom, the, the very uh, platform we're using right now, um, uh, which, which has a near monopoly status, uh, shutting down university seminars uh, because they have involved Leila Khaled, a, a, a Palestinian uh, resistance icon, a member of the PFLP, and this has happened because of uh, pressure from Israel and its lobby on Zoom, telling them you can't do this, overriding even the, uh, the judgment of university teachers and uh, university administrators who say it's in the interest of academic freedom and free inquiry and free speech for us to have these seminars. But an unaccountable Silicon Valley corporation 
imposed its own judgment and censored these events and shut them down. And we've seen Facebook and Twitter doing the same thing. And the problem is you can say, well, the First Amendment only applies to the government. So these are private corporations and the First Amendment doesn't apply. That's true. But look at the world we live in. We're dependent on these privately owned platforms. Universities are dependent on Zoom. For our public discourse to have any semblance of political participation, we are increasingly dependent on uh, Facebook and Twitter and others who act as the de facto public sphere. And not only are we seeing these corporations censoring, but we're seeing people who ought to know better demanding that they censor. And ironically, as Glenn Greenwald has pointed out, this was not a role any of these firms wanted. They were told, uh, even by people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you do this or we will impose regulation on you. And that is a grave danger to our ability to reach people and to speak freely. And, and, and that, that worries me greatly because what's left after that? If, if they shut us down or if they successfully limit us, which unfortunately is happening, we've seen other dissenting publications being shut down. Um, one example of the summer Facebook shut down the page of the Gaza Health Ministry. At the very moment when the coronavirus was starting to, to uh, have widespread community transmission in Gaza and that, that and people in Gaza are dependent on Facebook to get public health and other information. Uh, we managed to get them to reverse that and they apologized for it and claimed it was a mistake, but they've shut down the pages. Facebook has shut down the pages of a lot of Palestinian journalists and publications. And we've seen these corporations also teaming up. They say, well, we, don't, we can't be fact checkers, so we're going to team up with independent groups to do this. Who are the independent, so-called independent groups that Facebook has partnered with? They include the Atlantic Council, which is basically NATO's think tank in Washington, which is funded by the US government, funded by European Union governments, funded by the Gulf regimes that we were just talking about. They're going to be your independent fact checkers. And we saw Facebook setting up a so-called oversight board, which was again an effort to appease the, um, you know, the people demanding censorship. Who did they put on the oversight board? One of the people they put was Emmy Palmor, the former director general of the Israeli Justice Ministry, who was in charge of getting things censored on Facebook for the Israeli government. So effectively, Facebook appointed an Israeli government censor to its oversight, oversight board, has, which is going to decide what you know you and I and everyone else can say on Facebook. It's a very dangerous situation. There is pushback to it, but unfortunately, not enough. And I, and I, and frankly, I wish I had some good news, but I think it's going to be an increasing threat to all of our ability to organize and speak freely. Well, that's very troubling. It's already um, had a related to what you're discussing, the, the campaign against BDS has been uh, relentless and uh, intense for ever since BDS was created. 
promulgated. So I um, want to maybe finish up with you talking about that movement and the prospects uh, for a one-state solution, which you've championed. And given, you know, the absurdity of, of the apartheid Bantustan character of the occupied territories of, of a two-state solution being viable, I mean, it's just not any longer. Um, so, you know, I want to get your take on the extent to which you think BDS has been, while not silenced, uh, hampered, uh, how effective has been the campaign against it? And then if you could uh, transition into discussing, you know, the prospects of, of a one-state solution. I know in your, your book on, on the quest for justice in Palestine, you mentioned, and I've picked up on uh, as well, um, you know, the collapse obviously in South Africa is a model. The LGBT movement is a model for how things can sometimes change quickly. Uh, for the better and usher in a new wave of, of justice. So I wondered if you, you know, still feel somewhat more positive about the prospects for that happening. Oh, yeah. Well, one thing actually, before I get to all that. I'm one sorry thing to keep I, asking you to anticipate the future, but. No, uh, that's, that's, those are all very, that, those are the questions I'm pondering. So I'm not going to promise you definitive answers, but I'll tell you what I think about them. And one thing I wanted to point out also in terms of the Israel lobby that we, we didn't talk about, but I want to acknowledge is the extent to which it has become, perhaps always has been, but even more so primarily a Christian evangelical lobby. That's where its, it's, it's heft comes from. And uh, Trump acknowledged that um, I, during the campaign, I think he said, well, when he moved the embassy or recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital, he said that was for the evangelicals. You know, one of the good things about Trump is he often blurts out the truth, whether intentionally or not. And I just, I just wanted to, to, to note that because that again shows how Israel fits into the broader U.S. political context or what is often called the culture war and why Israel support for Israel is no, now so aligned with, far, with, with the right in the US. Um, and, and that's uh, why I'm, you know, I don't want to, well, hopeful, yes, hopeful that the, I talked earlier about the changes that have been going on in the base of the Democratic Party and more broadly, I think that will continue the alliances and the solidarity that is being built by different people fighting for justice for their communities, that will continue uh, and, and it has to continue. And I think the broad acceptance of BDS as a legitimate tactic, boycott, divestment, sanctions, these are tactics that have a long history in terms of the civil rights struggle in the United States, in terms of the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, I think we're going to continue to make gains there. At the same time, we're going to see a continued backlash from governments. Um, one of the tools they're using to try to stifle this movement is increasingly aggressive efforts to equate criticism of Israel and its lobby on the one hand with anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish bigotry on the other. Of course, we reject that equation. Uh, uh, you know, we absolutely have to reject that equation when we criticize Israel 
we don't hold Jews collectively responsible for its crimes. On the contrary, it's Israel that claims falsely to be acting in the name of all Jewish people all over the world. But those efforts are going to continue. Yet, if you look at the record, um, you know, Israel and its lobby have managed to push anti-BDS laws in a number of states and a number of countries around the world, but they haven't stifled the movement. I think what they do is they make people more determined uh, to, to stand up and resist and be heard. And the more people who are willing to speak out, the less powerful the, these forms of repression become. So I think that's going to continue. Uh, in terms of a one-state solution, I think it's clear now what's on the table. It's, it's either formalizing the Israeli apartheid regime that already exists and continues on the ground, which is what you know, Jared Kushner and supporters of the so-called deal of the century would want, where Palestinians are maybe given a few crumbs in terms of uh, uh, you know, economic aid or, or whatever it is, but basically they live under permanent subjugation or, or a vision of real liberation, which involves ending the, the Zionist system of racial, ethno-racial, religious separatism and hierarchy and uh, replacing it with a regime of equal rights for everyone. And um, I really don't see how we can shy away from that. You know, if those are the choices, which one are you going to pick? I think it's Shibli Telhami who did some polling in the past uh, couple of years that showed that if the American general public is faced with that choice, a permanent Israeli apartheid regime or equality for everyone, whether Palestinian or Jewish or anyone else, the vast majority of Americans will pick equality. Why? Not because Americans are particularly uh, sympathetic to Palestinians or particularly knowledgeable or concerned about uh, uh, Palestine, but because equality is what the vast majority of Americans want for themselves. So people understand it in a visceral way. So um, I think it's an argument we're going to have to keep making every step of the way, uh, but that's the direction things have been moving. And, uh, and I, I think that that's gonna continue. And we have to, I think one thing I would warn against is people uh, falling into the mindset of, oh, well, let's give Biden a chance. Let's see what he does. Let's you see who he appoints. Uh, yeah. Salvation is not going to come from the Biden administration or any other administration. It's going to come from people and movements who are demanding their rights. And the BDS movement is the primary way for people to participate in Palestine solidarity. And Palestinians emphasize the importance of that solidarity. Just like when I visited South Africa in recent years, people there said um, that international solidarity in the form of boycotts and divestment and sanctions on South Africa was crucial to their liberation. Palestinians see the same thing. It's got to be a grassroots movement. Well, I think you've very well explained why this work is so important and will continue. Let's um, transition to some questions. Grant, do we have some um, some email um, 
and YouTube uh, questions coming in? Oh yeah, they've been pouring in. So uh, I've grouped some of these together in kind of aftermath of Trump type questions. And so uh, the first one is that there was an explicit call by right-wing politicians in Israel to use the last weeks of the Trump administration as an opportunity to declare several illegal settlements in the West Bank as legal. Do you think there's a significant chance of that? And then uh, a comment that originally it didn't look like Bahrain wanted to go along with normalization. Uh, and just a question of whether he thinks that effort to push normalization will be picked up by the Biden administration. Yeah, I'll start with the last one. I think absolutely. Remember, Biden um, absolutely welcomed the normalization between the UAE and Bahrain and Israel. Um, and I think uh, the Obama administration was pushing for that kind of normalization. They were always pushing the uh, Arab regimes to make so-called gestures to Israel. So I think that I would not be surprised at all if uh, if we see more such uh, announcements under Biden. In terms of what Trump might do in uh, his final weeks in office, obviously it's hard to, to, to predict, but I would not be surprised at all if they uh, tried to create more so-called facts on the ground, whether actual physical facts or political facts. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, it's going to be hard, you know, of course, Biden can, you know, uh, recognizing a state is uh, an executive decision. Biden could undo uh, the recognition of uh, Jerusalem or the Golan Heights or the settlements. He can do that with a stroke of a pen on the first day, but whether he will is a totally separate question. So I could see Trump uh, you know, trying to throw a few more things is where Israel's way. On the other hand, you know, uh, with Trump, he might be so piqued at Netanyahu's uh, uh, congratulations to Joe Biden that he might say, I'm not going to give it to them. You know, they didn't. That's that kind of transactional Trump way of thinking that he might, uh, you know, get his revenge that way. Who knows? Okay, and then a question uh, that you've written, that there's a huge industry <clears throat> that for various reasons, th these are your words, views the survival of the peace process itself as paramount. Do you expect to see a resurgence of the peace process uh, industry? Are we going to be hearing about Dennis Ross any day now? What, what's your expectation there? The, the peace process industry is past its heyday, and that's a good thing. Um, I, I think some of those people have moved on, but undoubtedly there will be an effort to re revive it, and we have to be very cautious about that and uh, not allow these people to reassert themselves, the Dennis Rosses, the Martin Indix, the Tony Blairs, and so on, these opportunists. Uh, and, you know, the Aaron David Miller, who I think is, you know, was a State Department, uh, uh, you know, diplomat for 25 years and is now at one of the Washington think tanks, I forget which one, um, the Carnegie Endowment and is sort of this perennial uh, commentator. He wrote a, uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post 
uh, a few years back called Israel's Attorney. Uh, and he said that, you know, for decades, US officials, including myself, instead of being honest brokers, have acted as Israel's lawyer. And uh, so, uh, and that's who, that's who they are. That was a very frank uh, admission. Uh, and, and there will be an effort for them to come back, but we, we have to resist it. Um, and then there is a question. It says, you called attention to the electronic intifadas reporting on censorship of the Gaza Health Ministry, changing the scenario and changing the situation. Are there any sort of small doable things that concerned Americans without your platform can do in the name of justice for Palestinians? Yes, I mean, the, the one thing is, is while we have these platforms is to speak out and not be intimidated, to be educated uh, and to, you know, really know the facts. And I'm very proud that the Electronic Intifada has a really strong record of uh, very accurate reporting. We almost never have to issue corrections. Of course, we're not infallible, but, but we pay a lot of attention to the accuracy of what we report. So we're a resource. There are certainly others. Um, and also to speak out against the censorship, because it's like, it's very easy to say to, to, to sort of be satisfied when your enemies or adversaries are censored. But you have to remember that that is going to come back to bite you. That's why I've been very uh, wary uh, of, um, you know, the even the censorship of Donald Trump by Facebook and uh, and Twitter. It's not because I think Donald Trump is great or his opinions are, are so important, but um, I'm not comfortable with Twitter telling me what I can and can't think and what is and isn't a fact. That's something that I want to turn to experts uh, to, to, to make those decisions on people that I, I turn to. I want to decide who I'm going to turn to, not have Twitter decide that for me. So I think we have to speak out about that censorship and um, and use these platforms, make it worthwhile. You know, there's no point having free speech if you don't use it. So, um, and of course, people can get involved in BDS campaigns. Uh, there are many BDS campaigns around the world and around the United States. Um, and uh, so there's lots of reading up people can do on that to find out um, how to join campaigns that are going on or how to start their own because the whole idea is this is a, a solidarity movement that ordinary people are an essential part of and so that you know that's something Palestinians definitely want to see okay I guess there was a follow-up question on activism it just says what do you think are the uh, other types of activism within the U.S. that have the most potential for significant change? I think he's talking about beyond BDS. Well, that's a good question. You know, uh, I think BDS is very important, but, I, you know, people are engaging in all kinds of activism. You know, I, I may not have a lot of faith in, uh, in uh, electoral politics from time to time, but I think it's great that people are pushing politicians, uh, you know, especially the progressives to take stronger stances. I think that's something we all need to do. I always say, uh, don't take yes from a, for an answer from politicians. 
uh, always demand more, always demand what you think you can't get because that's how you push things. If you only demand what you think you can get and what is acceptable right now, then you don't, you don't move things. And that's a lesson I think people need to learn from the right. The right always demands more, never takes yes for an answer, never accepts crumbs. Uh, and that, and that's, that's, I think, how they've managed to shift the political discourse so far to the right in this country. So people can engage in electoral politics or in party politics, but push for something, push for what you believe in. Uh, there's no point getting power just for the sake or getting elected just for the sake of it. If you're not in a position, if you don't have a movement behind you that can help you actually push for something different. Um, so uh, that's one thing. And I think also um, there's impo important work being done. Groups like Palestine Legal are pushing back against the, um, the anti-free speech laws uh, the anti-BDS laws that have been passed in several states. So there's definitely work that lawyers can do to help with those kinds of cases. If there are lawyers out there who, uh, you know, have pro bono time that they want to give, that's an example of, of places they can apply those skills. Okay, that's great. I'm turning it back to you, Walter. Okay, I think we'll wrap it up. It's been about uh, 70 uh, enlightening minutes or so. Um, and want to invite listeners to um, subscribe to the YouTube channel, read the Washington Report, uh, check out all the good stuff on Electronic Intifada as well as uh, uh, RMEP and um, Institute for Research Middle East Policy. And so, Ali, thanks so much for doing this. Um, I think your, your insight, your courage, and your uh, incredible determination are uh, inspirational to a lot of people, and we know you'll keep it up, and thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Walter, and thank you, Grant. And with that, folks, we'll sign off. We don't have the next uh, speaker lined up yet for the extra series, but um, there will be one shortly, and you will be informed, and uh, please tune in again. So thank you again, Ali and Grant, and we'll talk to you folks later.